0: Hi, sexy people. I'm Dr. Tammy. Welcome to the Trouble with Sex. I am so honored to talk with my guest today. I am here with the brave and fierce Natasha Heller Parker. Natasha is a licensed marriage and family therapist, an asex certified sex therapist. She's a speaker, she's a writer, she's a podcast host, she's a supervisor. She's got over 20 years of experience working with individuals, couples, families, and she's also a Mormon. Natasha has been an advocate for sexual health with all kinds of marginalized people, including the LGBTQ community, religious minorities, and she has been a champion. She's been destigmatizing the sexual lifestyle choices that people make, due to all kinds of cultural, personal, and religious biases. This past April, just recently, in a really public controversy, the Church of Latter-day Saints revoked Natasha's membership for her public opposition to the church's stances on masturbation, same-sex marriage, and pornography. Her supporters in the church protested this removal, chanting things like, "'Sexuality is not a sin.'" but it wasn't successful. Stay with us. We are supported by Uber Lube. Did you know that lube doesn't just help with dryness? Eliminating friction enhances pleasure. As a sex therapist, I get asked about lubricants all the time. And one of my all-time favorites for solo and partner play is Uber Lube. Uber lube is simple, sexy, smooth. It's never sticky, and a little goes a long, long way. It reduces friction while naturally heightening sensation. There's no harmful parabens, no glycerin, and best of all, Uberlube has no scent or taste. Go to Uberlube.com. Use the promo code Dr. Tammy. That's D R. T-A-M-M-Y, for 10% off plus free shipping anywhere in the U.S. That's uberlube, U-B-E-R-L-U-B-E dot com, promo code Dr. Tammy, and get yourself some uberlube today. I want to say welcome. Thank you for being here and I know our listeners are really interested, first of all, like, tell us why this was so important to you to be a voice, to stand up for sexual rights. And also, why is it so important for you to to continue to be a part of the church if it's a club that they didn't really want you to be a part of? That seems so painful to me.
1: Thank you, first of all, for your welcome. I'm so glad to be on your show, Tammy. i I've known you for now for several years, known of you for sure. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yes, I'm Natasha Helfer. I am a marriage and family therapist. I've been an accredited asex sex therapist now for over 10 years and just love my work in, in the sexuality field. And this dilemma, you know, I think between religion and science is not a new one, right? This is an age old dilemma for a variety of reasons on varieties of topics That have to do with evolution, whether the world is round or flat, you know, how we think about our sexuality, (laughs) lots of different things across the ages where, you know, as the human race has garnered more information, maybe more from a scientific evidence perspective, it's had to deal with the tension of the stories and beliefs and even myths that have to do with religion and how people... Think about God, deity in general, whether or not deity exists. And if they do exist, what do they have to say about these things? So that hits at the core of a lot of people's worldviews, their identities, their culture, their families, their communities. And so it's interesting when you call it a club. I think for a lot of people who maybe don't come from a high demand religious background, maybe don't understand that it isn't as clubbish as it is community mm-hmm. for those who come from those kinds of backgrounds. And you grew up in that community, right? Yeah. Yeah. My parents converted to Mormonism when I was a little girl, probably about four or five years old. So I don't come from it necessarily from the heritage of Mormonism, which, you know, that's a whole nother type of background, you know, the, the pioneers who crossed the plains. And for those of you you know who know a bit about What's deemed the American religion, you know, "quote unquote," has a very fascinating story with the founder of Joseph Smith and the people ending up, you know, out west after a lot of uh, persecution, but also having caused a lot of problems, you know, in the communities that they were a part of because they were so different and having such different ideas about religion and how religion should be lived that it caused a lot of. Conflict, you know, in the spaces that they were taking up.
0: Sort of like you're doing right now, causing a lot of conflict, being different yeah. in the space <laughs> that you're taking up. <laughs> you know, started <laughs> by rebels, and here you are rebelling against the same kind of uh, rigid
1: boundaries. Yeah, because that's absolutely right. The founder, you know, started asking questions and doubting and coming up with ideas that were very different from the status quo. So my desire to stay in the church is probably, you know, if I'm going to simplify it twofold, one, it is personal. I, I've had many experiences in my church community that are very valuable to me, both spiritually and also just as a community. But secondly, I do good work within the, the church. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know the language, I'm culturally competent, I have a lot of understanding about how people think especially around sexuality and that gives me an ability to understand where they're coming from to meet people where they are at and to hopefully see where there might be some shift or possibility for flexibility or reframes that is a big part of doing any type of therapy work and have had quite a bit of success in both the mixed Faith families, you know, so when one person leaves the church and one does not, I do really good work in that area. And also, of course, in the areas of understanding sexuality and integrating sexual science with religious and spiritual beliefs.
0: So how did this come to their attention that you were doing stuff that was outside of the the church's doctrine?
1: Well, they are correct that I have been public and vocal. I mean, I run a blog called The Mormon Therapist. I have spoken on many occasions at different presentations. I was part of the protect LDS children movement, which was about challenging the tradition of worthiness interviews where children as young as 11 years of age are asked certain questions by their bishops in kind of a one-on-one interview behind closed doors. And some of those questions have to do with their sexual life. And so we were seeing some very problematic, you know, outcomes from that. Even in the best case scenarios, it was definitely a lack of boundaries, lack of privacy, a lot of power dynamics there for a young child to be asked very inappropriate questions about their bodies, whether or not they touch their bodies, whether or not they touch other people's bodies, what they think about. Do they look at pornography for you know a 12-year-old to be asked those kinds of questions by a grown man who represents God can be very intimidating and scary and shaming yeah and shaming and in the worst case scenarios of course this is you know ideal for grooming behaviors and an actual sexual assault and we have several cases like that like most communities do where you know there's sexual abuse between clergy and their congregants oh so they probably did not like you talking about that no, I'm, I'm guessing not. And then I podcast a lot. I run the Mormon Mental Health Podcast. I run the Mormon Sex Info Podcast. So yeah, I've been talking very vocally and publicly for about a decade about many of these issues. And it's interesting too, because out of all the issues to be upset with me about, these three issues have been out in front and center for, again, like I said, at least seven years or so. So they are not new issues. So it's, It's interesting that it is now that they're coming, you know, and saying we no longer are okay with you doing this. So
0: what's the deal? I mean, it feels a little bit like a witch burning to me. Like, why do it so publicly and why do it now? And what's the deal with sex now in the church? And, you know, what is the biggest trouble with sex today in the church or just in our culture that, that brought this out now?
1: Well, I will say that I was the one that brought it out publicly, you know, they, I, I'm not sure that they would have done anything publicly. They sent me a letter, but you have to understand that in the church, as soon as something happens, you know, with your membership, eventually it becomes public, whether you realize it or not, you know, as far as how people will discredit you, will. but don't you know that she's, you know, no longer a member that she was excommunicated like or so those kinds of things will happen regardless of whether or not it makes the news.
0: Because everyone's like a small community, you mean? So everybody knows each yeah, other? Yeah, it's a small okay.
1: community. Yeah, and they can, you know, I, I, I thought through my options, you know, should I go public with this or not? But I, I, I'm not going to change how I go about, you know, my practice and my advocacy work. And so... I could just foresee that, you know, I'd be talking and people would be like, she's presenting herself as a member when she's not, even if I didn't say anything about membership. And so I thought, you know what, it's better if I just come out and say what's happening. And this is, you know, what's happening to me. And and let's just do this as a community, which quite frankly, goes along with a lot of my goals anyway, which I think in high demand religions and conservative communities, we do need transparency. We need less secrecy. We need to understand the processes that are happening and these kinds of processes of disciplinary councils, which they now call membership councils have in general been shrouded with a lot of secrecy and they call it sacred, you know, it's sacred. And of course they should, they the church should take confidentiality seriously. They should not be broadcasting, but they're disciplining their members. So I'm, I'm appreciative of that at the same time, as I found out going through the process very few people really knew much about what the process would be like, how it would go forward, what it would entail. And I don't know that that's really healthy for the community. So I didn't care about my own confidentiality in this case. So that made it possible to have it be a more public story.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, what I heard you say is, "I well, you brought it out into the public and that was your choice to sort of increase the transparency and the honesty and to be able to say, you know, look, this is what's happening to me. Right. That you didn't want to keep it secret, correct? And that's your whole—that's your whole gig. Like, let's not keep secrets. And maybe that is the biggest trouble with sex. It's like it's a big secret.
1: It's a big secret. Let's talk about sex more openly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, my my best guess as to what is happening within the LDS community, as well as as well as other communities that are that lean more religiously conservative, is when I, when I look at the trajectory of the history and sexual shame has always been part of that story. At the same time, I would say I have seen an uptick in concerns for sexual morality for really with the, the up and coming kind of processes of two particular issues. One is gay marriage and the LGBTQ plus community, you know, actually succeeding and having more social justice rights and, having more of a platform in the sense of, hey, we we get the right to exist. We get the right to love. We get the right to have relationships in the ways that we have the right to have families and to adopt children. And so all of those types of rights that the uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual community in particular have been advocating for and have been making quite a bit of progress, I would say, in the last 25 years in this country has, in a sense, created a backfire effect from you know, the more conservative religions that see this as maybe the signs of the times, evil coming forth across the world. I mean, just so many homophobic, horrifically homophobic practices and teachings that come from some of these religiously conservative communities. And then the second thing that I think has been happening over the last 25 years is the rise of the internet, which means, of course, that now. Uh, sexually explicit materials are so much more available. And I think we've all been dealing with what that means in regards to our youth, our adults, you know, our access to things that maybe in a marriage haven't been contracted, you know, before the internet, you had to kind of be a little bit more intentional in order to have sexually explicit materials. You had to subscribe to a magazine or you had to go down to the store and <laughs> purchase something. Whereas now it's just at the click of your hands, right? So those are two issues that I see religiously conservative communities really struggling with, not knowing quite how to make sense of it, not feeling very in control of, and therefore having a lot of panic and a lot of kind of moral indignation around those issues. And when somebody like me, uh, well, for one, you know, in the gay marriage world completely supports it and sees it as, you know, a, a move towards humanity's health. And then two, with the pornography issue, tries to normalize it and give new framings that aren't quite as panicky and, and also doesn't support the addiction model, which is very, you know, entrenched in kind of these religiously, conservative communities, you can see why they would see me as a big threat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, they've given you a lot of power, <laughs> you know, which is interesting from a, you know, a historical perspective, how powerful they see women and how afraid they are of your power, like that you could threaten their message so dramatically by helping the LGBTQ community, by supporting, Gay marriage by you know working with couples that are struggling you know by by having a sort of sex positive or sexual wellness model in your therapy that somehow that's going to threaten their you know the whole <laughs> the whole foundation of their religion you know that's that makes you pretty powerful Natasha
1: I I guess so I guess that is definitely one way to look at it Yeah well they
0: had to like excommunicate you because they're so afraid of you like that's pretty intense.
1: Yeah, it is. It is pretty intense. And, and of course, you know, I mean, I I have been through a lot of excommunications of public figures and in some ways they will be successful in some ways they won't, you know, in some ways they will draw more attention to these issues and more people will see this as something to look into or investigate For some people who are already on the margins or trying to figure out how this church that's so conservative and maybe doesn't totally align with their values anymore, how are they going to make it work? They'll leave. I've had several messages coming in saying this was the last straw for me. I'm actually taking my name off the records because they can't make room for mental health professionals and sexual health professionals, and I don't want to be a part of the church so in that way, it does give me a lot of power. On the other hand, of course, there is a segment of the Mormon population that will now not touch me or my materials with a 10-foot pole, right? So they will see me as dangerous. The church will be successful in alienating their more orthodox members and more believing members from the type of information that could actually benefit their marriages, their sexuality, uh, if you have a gay child or a transgender child and you're one of these families, you are now not going to feel safe or righteous in gathering information that would be considered sex positive and actually best standards of care. So that, to me, is what is so scary and kind of tragic.
0: That's so sad. I mean, it's so polarizing. It just creates this, you know, intense polarization about these super religious Conservative, rigid values where people feel ongoing shame. And, you know, you trying clearly with the best of intentions to help. You're clearly not trying to hurt or take down anyone's values. You're really trying to help. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I can't believe it, but The Trouble with Sex is entering its fifth season. And we have some spectacular guests and topics lined up for you. As we gear up for the next season, now is an excellent time to catch up on the episodes you might have missed and share the podcast with your friends. Everyone needs relationship and sex advice, and The Trouble with Sex unpacks your most pressing concerns around pleasure, sex, love, and relationships. And I interview the leading experts in the field. If you have a question you want answered, please go to thetroublewithsex.com and click on Ask Dr. Tammy. I'm going to write back to you personally, or we'll answer your question on an upcoming episode of the show. New episodes come out twice a month on Thursdays, so please share, rate, and listen to The Trouble With Sex on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's been the fallout for you in your personal life?
1: Well, for me personally, it's been very wounding. Uh, It it is difficult to spend so much of your time and energy caring for a community already being treated other. I mean, it's not like I've been treated great. (laughs) I mean, my start as a mental health therapist 20 some years ago, immediately put me at conflict with the some concepts of the church, even before I studied sexuality, you know, so In the Mormon church, for example, you have a lot of spiritual counseling. You know, people will go in to talk to their bishop like people might for their priests. However, the difference in Mormonism is that we have a lay clergy. So these persons who take these roles temporarily, you know, usually a bishop is a bishop for about four to five years. It's a temporary position. It could be the local electrician. It could be the local business person. It could be the local... Carpenter, whatever that's taking this role, has zero training in matters of couples counseling, for example, mental health counseling. And so, as people are coming into counsel with this man who is speaking again from deity's perspective, according to the couple, they may be getting some very poor advice, especially when it comes to you know things that took me years to study <laughs> and that I still felt fairly you know, intimidated by it at the beginning of my profession. Right. So I would come into conflict with ecclesiastical leaders really from the get go, as far as like overhearing what a couple said their bishop told them to do or not to do, you know, whether they should divorce, for example, like, Oh, your, your husband's leaving the church. Maybe really you should consider divorce. And I'm like, whoa, you know, like that's way jumping the gun here, you know, and I'm not sure that's really helpful advice at all. So it's been a conflictual relationship between my authority, right? My authority lies in mental health and and medicine and kind of, you know, that whole social science type of specificity and their authority lies with God. Well, anytime you're dealing with religiously conservative cultures, guess who trumps, right? So God is the trump card. And on top of it, like you mentioned before, I'm female. So I don't even have the priesthood power, right? So sometimes male therapists within my community may have a little bit more credibility because a couple or an individual going to see him, even though he's not playing that ecclesiastical role in that space, they're like in the back of their minds, well, but at least he has the priesthood. So he might have some type of inspiration for us as our therapist. Mm. So I didn't even have that. <laughs> so according to the Mormon church, I have very little authority, even though according to my profession, I have all the authority I need, especially now as I became ASEX certified, I have even more authority than many of my LDS colleagues who also make a lot of mistakes in how they counsel with people because they, a lot of times, religiously conservative therapists are practicing unethically themselves and imposing their own religious values on the people that they see.
0: For those of you who don't know, ASEC is American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. And they're like the certifying body that designates sex therapists. So you need 160 hours of training, plus 50 hours of supervision, plus 300 clinical hours under supervision. I mean, you really need a lot of training and that's postgraduate. So she has a graduate degree in marriage and family therapy, where she also had to do a ton of clinical hours on top of her graduate training. You know, this, this is a very professional person who has a ton of experience.
1: Yeah. And so you can see that my frustration If I wanted to work within this space, I had to become very adept at being able to, you know, be patient, be careful, in a sense, kind of tiptoe around a lot of different minefields. So that the information that I had, which was not mine, you know, it's not like I have any super brilliant ideas. I'm not a researcher. I'm not like, I don't come up with a lot of this stuff. That, but I, but I do study a whole hell of a lot, right? And I do go to get all my CES, and I'm very mindful about gathering information. So, but I'm coming back to my hometown with information that could be so valuable, and yet it's being seen as like this box of dynamite, right? So I have to be very careful. And and not threatening kind of the status quo too much. So, that's a very interesting dance that I think many people are in, in regards to a lot of the communities that we see here in the United States, especially along the Bible Belt. Uh, You know, I lived in Wichita, Kansas for over a decade. So, even though I didn't, that wasn't a Mormon place, it was definitely an evangelical Christian place. And I saw a lot of the similar dynamics, you know, Christian therapists doing unethical work a lot of secular or, you know, ethical Christian therapists, you know, coming across a lot of backlash and tension. And it's very difficult to do that dance, walk that road.
0: Wow. So I I, I keep coming back to this feeling of, you know, women finding their voice, being a champion for pleasure and butting up against this really ancient message around women being dangerous and pleasure being the thing that's going to bring us down. You know, the old Garden of Eden, <laughs> Eve eating the apple. You know, she is the the reason that, you know, <laughs> we are the way we are. She's the, the end of society because she pursued her pleasure and ate that damn apple. And, you know, once again, here you are, the harlot who's destroying, destroying <laughs> the, what we've worked so hard to preserve here in, the, in this culture of, you know, patriarchy. It's really fascinating. We have a question from a listener today, and she says, my sister is in love with a woman and wants to get married. She's no longer a part of the church, but the rest of our family is. I'm finding myself in the middle of defending and supporting to our family and the LDS community. What can I do to help bridge the gap and unite our parents, extended family, and our community? So, you know, just this a, a little a little dilemma.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, this is uh this is very indicative of of the situation so many different families are in mm. within the church of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So where you have you know parents or or other family members who are concerned for the spiritual well-being of this this you know lesbian member of their family that if she follows that path of getting married to another woman that that will disqualify her from things like eternal heaven the eternal family system So if if you're sitting within that kind of belief system, this is incredibly tragic, scary, and frightening for parents or siblings or loved ones to, to think that these kinds of lifestyle choices would separate them from their person for the eternities. But that's the level of distress that is happening in these communities and why it's difficult for people to shift or give up their ideas that we would deem homophobic, right? Or not affirming. Well,
0: they're not playing around. I mean, mm-hmm. they're very threatened by homosexual relationships. Right. And is that why? Because they feel like, you know, you're be eternally damned, your soul is is going
1: to hell. Like what what is that? In a sense, yes. That's that's basically I mean, Mormonism has some, you know, more complex doctrine than just heaven and hell per se, like most Christians do. But regardless, the goal is to get to this level in heaven that you would be able to spend the eternities with your eternal family. That that would be the main goal. And sin would separate you from being able to do that, whatever sin that is. But then on the other side of that spectrum, you have, you know, family members or friends who maybe are more nuanced, more able to not be as rigid in their belief systems, see the importance and the pain and the suffering of their loved ones and want to support and be affirming, even if it doesn't completely adhere with their religious kind of idea of how life should go. And so you see these tensions within these families, within the church happening all the time. Dr. Caitlin Ryan out of San Francisco has done some excellent work in helping families through the Family Acceptance Project, and especially LDS families. She's come up with a pamphlet that helps LDS families understand what affirming behaviors might look like that really are not about changing your beliefs or values. But so that's a really good place to start is to think, where do we still have common values here? You know, within the LDS church, for example, there are values that have to do with love and, you know, not judging other people and being patient and being, you know, long suffering in our ability to reach out to other people, even if we disagree with them. And so that has been, that would be a, a, you know, where can we have common ground, even if we have some very different ideas about what this particular person should be doing. But this is also the part where I think it's important for the Mormon people to really educate themselves on is that when you, in a sense currently in the LDS Church, the only way you can be a righteous gay or lesbian person is to either enter a mixed orientation marriage, which we know has very, very high risk, you know 70 to 80 percent divorce rates, and or choose a celibate lifestyle. And celibate, not just in sexuality, but in romance, you know, in partnership of any kind. And we also know that that has been tied to very high levels of physiological distress. Like these kinds of people will be so distressed emotionally that it will start affecting, you know, gastrointestinal issues and how they, you know, kind of work through the world, because what we know now a lot more in mental health, that when you're stressed out, it affects your physical health. You know, whether or not you're going to die younger, you know, this can take 10 years off your life. You know, you can have heart concerns. that makes sense
0: because everything, you repress things, you get anxious, you get depressed and yeah, just
1: people die of loneliness. Exactly. So these are very, very unfair, unhealthy parameters and expectations that are put upon our LG community in particular. It gets even more complicated, of course, for our transgender folks and bisexual folks are oftentimes just like, well, thank goodness, thank goodness you're bisexual, because then you can, you know, just, of course, choose the right kind of partner, <laughs> which, of course, minimizes the bisexual experience astronomically. So is very challenging there as well. So, it's it's really a big mess for this whole community, not to mention the youth that are not developed enough to really understand what these things mean and why I believe our suicide rates in Utah are quite a bit higher than the rest of the nation. And also our youth homeless rates are fairly high with a high population in that homelessness being LGBTQ youth. Oh, that's
0: really sad. Uh, so Natasha, we have one more question. What's the incidence of affairs and infidelity in the LDS Church, and how would how do you deal with that? And how do you work with affairs as a therapist in that community?
1: So I don't know that we know exactly if the statistics, you know, are dramatically different from the overall population or not in regards to infidelity because I'm not sure that there's necessarily quote unquote Mormon data on that. I may be incorrect on that. So if somebody knows, let me know. But my experience has been that usually in the areas of sexuality, anecdotally anyway, my, my sense is that we actually are pretty much right aligned with the mainstream culture. if not out of it actually. Mm, Interesting. Because when you have so much suppression and oppression in regards to sexuality, it tends to seep out somewhere. Plus, uh, you also may have different definitions of infidelity. For example, a lot of couples may see pornography viewing as a form of infidelity or betrayal that maybe the mainstream culture wouldn't deem that to that level, you know, distress. So you have a lot of different kind of complicated factors around that. Uh, I think, you know, working with infidelity is difficult in any realm, but one of the things that I really talk about with within the Mormon culture is, and of course, you know, this is maybe after the first part of dealing with infidelity, where you really just have to attend to the wound and to boundaries, and you know, some of the things that I think most of us would be attending to when a case of infidelity comes into our office. But once the couples, you know, starting to think about recovery and they've decided to stay together. For example, one of the things I really think is important to start talking to them about in the space of conservative religion, there isn't much room for individual sexuality. In a sense, we grew up with the story that the sex- our sexuality belongs to our partner mm. and our partner's sexuality belongs to us. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of ownership there's a lot of ideas around I have a right to know everything you think about. I have a right to know everything that you do. I have a right to tell you whether or not you're allowed to want certain things or act in certain ways. And this can be from anything from what you're thinking to whether or not you touch your own body and masturbate. And so I think it's really important. And I've actually used your thoughts, you know, in your book, The New Monogamy to consider the new contract for a couple and can we reject somewhat this idea that my sexuality belongs to you and instead think about it from the perspective of my sexuality belongs to me and I'd like to share it with you mm, that's nice and how are we going to do that in a way that we you know that aligns sufficiently with each other's values but also allow a little bit of autonomy because otherwise you get into these parameters where It's policing, right? It's policing. We police each other. Mm -hmm. We monitor each other. Oh, well, you're not allowed to do this. And I'm not allowed to do that. And and most of the time as as adult human beings, that doesn't bode well with our sense of autonomy and independence, even though we want to be partnered and causes more problems and actually decreases eroticism in a couple, right? So yeah, it creates a
0: parentified
1: relationship. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. Exactly. So if I feel like I'm the naughty kid and you're the parent that's constantly you know, monitoring me or the police person in my life, that's probably going to affect how sexy you are to me or how sexy I am to you. Unless
0: you want to dress up in a police uniform and then that's something different.
1: Right. <sighs> then, then that can be a lot of fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so what's next for you, Natasha? And what thoughts do you want to leave our listeners with? How can we get in touch with you?
1: Sure. well, I, I mean, I think what's next for me, and I've been fairly open about this is is same old, same old, right? I don't really plan on doing much different. I continue to plan to work from this perspective about how we can increase resources and services for people who are in these populations, whether or not people want to. You take advantage of those resources is, of course, up to them, and they have to kind of sit with that dilemma. Which I think, like I said at the very beginning, where religion and science hasn't always been, you know, aligned. This was true in the medical fields, you know, very much so. And yet, somehow, religion and science have come up much closer together in regards to whether or not you go to a doctor for your heart condition or things of that nature. But we still have some work to do in the psychological and sexual health fields. And so I invite people to kind of sit with that discomfort and, you know, think about, is there a way to bridge my religious beliefs and things that are very sacred and spiritual to me with good research-based, evidence-based, best practice information. So I will continue to podcast. I will continue to write. I will continue to practice. You know, I I do see individuals and, and couples for therapy I also run a group practice where, you know, I train other providers to work around these issues as well. As we see a lot of shifts in the in the country as far as people kind of becoming less religiously affiliated but still wanting a spiritual to kind of tract in their life, I think that's a lot of the work that we do as well, which implies a shift in your sexuality. If you're shifting your ideas about world, the world, your worldview, it's going to automatically affect how you see yourself sexually as well. So I think there's a lot of exciting work for us as an overall community to be entering into more sex positive spaces. And then as far as how people can reach me and contact me. So my website is You can contact me there. I have a variety of resources. Like I said, my my practice, I have webinars, I have podcasts, I have um, blogs. My group practice is SymmetrySouls.com. But easier than that, we also have the domain called GetMormonHelp.com. Because there are so many people within the Mormon community that are either going through some type of faith transition or have somebody in their immediate family who are and or are dealing with these kinds of issues around sexuality or gender identity.
0: So if you're looking for more from Natasha, that's Natasha Helfer, N-A-T-A-S-H-A-H-E-L-F-E-R.com or GetMormonHelp.com. And we're going to put all those links in our show notes Thanks so much for being here. And thanks for all the work that you're doing in the world. I really appreciate you.
1: Thank you, Tammy, for having me. And I appreciate you right back. (laughs) Thank
0: you. (laughs) And thanks to all my sexy listeners and to our sponsors today on The Trouble with Sex. Until next time, I'm Dr. Tammy. Stay sexy, stay healthy, stay well. Have a question about your relationship, your sex life, or sexual wellness? Visit thetroublewithsex.com and click on Ask Dr. Tammy to send me your question. For sex-positive tips, live events, and updates, join my mailing list and follow us at the Trouble with Sex on Instagram. The Trouble with Sex is produced by Brandy Savitt and Jane Applegate. Our audio is designed by Flavor Lab, New York City. This episode was recorded by Bruce Hirschfield and mixed by JC Chow. Music by Bruce Hirschfield.